Hello and welcome to the Shut Up and Sit Down board game podcast in Ooh. which a bunch of people talk about board games, mm-hmm. but we do it for a living, so it's marginally more entertaining than that description makes it sound. Yeah. My name... <laughs> you look You look uncertain about well, that's Well, that's quite a lot of shade on people who do it for fun. Oh, yeah. Mm. Well, anyway, my name's Quentin Smith, <laughs> and I'm joined today by Tom Brewster. I'm also here. Uh, and we are sat once again, uh, knee to knee. Yes. Uh, squatting uh, around a microphone. <laughs> squatting makes it sound like we don't have chairs. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a much funnier mental image for the people at home. Picture, if you will, people at home, me and Tom squatting on our haunches in the corner of my office around a single mic. Uh, it, it would be romantic <laughs> if it didn't have a kind of desolate post-apocalyptic. Yeah, sort of and, and this is the second time we've recorded this intro. So imagine that we're also like straining and sweating from being <laughs> squatting in this position for two intros in a row. Well, we have actually been straining and sweating for the last couple of hours. For, oh, for yeah. real, haven't we? We have. Tom and I have just started our campaign of Undaunted Stalingrad, <gasps> which holds which, which, a, a good sort of like gunner for the prize of most tense game of all time. <laughs> um, this is a campaign version of the Undaunted World War II series in which you control little squads of soldiers and they run around shooting at each other and they die and it's sad. Mm. Uh, but Stalingrad says, hey, what if they died permanently? <laughs> and uh, and so the, and the results of every mission would determine where you would go next as you fight for the city of Stalingrad. Yeah, what if they died even more? Yeah. Uh, it's Yeah, it's so tense. Not helped by the fact that Quinn's put on some music in the background that was like, it sent my heart immediately beating like, 20 miles per hour quicker than it probably should have been. Yes, I put I don't know the actually a BPM, that's it, not miles per hour. That's not <laughs> <laughs> a band with miles with well, miles an hour is so fast. Uh yes, that band is uh the teeth of the sea if you want to listen mm-hmm. to it. Um and just imagine two people sweating over a board game as this music pulses in the background. It honestly reminds me of like Undaunted is good for making board games feel like they did with when you were a kid. Because you and I mm. playing this game would roll a dice and go, no! <laughs> but not like, you know, usually we play board games where like at one point during the game, a dice mm. roll will be so important that you roll the dice and scream. Yes. That's every dice roll mm-hmm. in Undaunted Stalingrad. Or it's that you you will apply theatrics to a dice roll that might not necessarily need it, but in Undaunted, the theatrics are necessary. Yes. Every single time. Because someone's going to get shot in the head or not, which is going to be very <laughs> important for one of you. Um, anyway, we're going to be doing lots of coverage of Undaunted Stalingrad in the future. Um, but for today, And in the past. Uh, oh yeah, you can also go and look at my Undaunted Normandy uh, review. Or me and Matt's first impressions of Undaunted Stalingrad podcast episode. Thank you very much. That's true. Quentin I listened Smith. to that podcast episode and it made me want to play the game. And now we are. And now we are. And now we're doing another podcast. God, life is just... Time is a flat circle. We're yep. just all going doing the same things over and over again. Um, <laughs> but the two new games we're talking about in this episode uh are rebuilding sorry i've literally forgotten what they were yeah for it a looked like there. you were pausing for me to lead on that <laughs> i mean i can we can say them together if we want okay rebuilding, rebuilding seattle. seattle and fire, fire and stone. stone siege of vienna, vienna. in the 1683 the board game nailed it from capstone games Woo! okay jesus <laughs> talk about the least impressive well is that fair no actually i do think both of these are good games okay and i think both of these games that we're about to talk about are games that you and i enjoyed start to finish yes how about that for the positive spin on it yeah i well yeah that's that's not the spin on it that's just the truth it is the truth the other truth is that we also decided we probably wouldn't 
be in a hurry to buy them. I suppose that's the negative spin on it, isn't it? But they are good games. But they are good games. Okay, right. <laughs> let's, let's keep the positivity going, then we can get a bit more negative at the end of the podcast. Um, but yeah, Rebuilding Seattle um, is a game coming out from WizKids. It's designed by uh, Quinn Brander, and it's coming out next year. We've played it early. Ooh. And let me tell you, if this is any indication of what the games are going to be like in 2023... They're going to be quite good. They're going to be good, but not permanent. <laughs> not, not permanent. Right, okay. Would you like to describe what people do in the game of Rebuilding Seattle? So Rebuilding Seattle is basically a sort of tetromino tile-laying game. You Stop using this... fancy words. Okay, you put Tetris pieces together. Nice. On cardboard. Good. Yeah. How basic do you want me to go with? Well, no, so now I just feel like you're talking down to our audience. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a game about uh, rebuilding Seattle after there's been a fire oh, yeah. in the 19th century that burned the whole city down, and then you're these people who rebuild Seattle. Mm, and you do that by getting cards from a big market, and each one of those cards has a tiny little tetromino Tetris piece on it that you're going to bleep, slot into your little Seattle construction. Now, I'm going to... Uh, there are pedants listening to this right now who are gonna say Tom. It's a polyomino? Yeah, because tetrominoes are made up of four squares. I'm gonna tell those people. <laughs> Don't be rude. <laughs> okay, <laughs> then I won't say anything. Okay, great. Um, Lovely. So yeah, in this game you're drafting cards, or like you're going around the table, you're, well, you're buying cards, really. F Tom! <laughs> God! You're gonna get a Sorry, canceled. I couldn't, couldn't keep it in. I know, jeez. Alright, listen. <laughs> are there any more of those coming? No, don't worry. Okay. Um, you've really thrown me. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, yes, in this game, players take turns buying cards. Well, actually, you do one of several things on your turn because you can yeah. also activate an event. Oh, uh, yeah. Or you can activate your special you power. You threw over to me to describe the game, and I, you, you know, I think you clocked that I'd forgotten almost every single thing I did in this game. Perfect. Okay, great. Here's what I'm going to describe instead. So, on your turn, you have a little grid in front of you, which is your suburb of Seattle, mm -hmm. and that is something you do get to fill with buildings, Ooh. like, you know, train stations and banks and restaurants, but... Unfortunately, the residents of Seattle are incredibly demanding and they mm. want three things. They want food, they oh. want shops, Ooh. and they want dancing. Woo! Because it's the 19th century and it's not the 18th century anymore. People want to dance. They do. Um, however, the game then says you can't possibly fulfill all those needs. It's too much, so probably just focus on two of them. Mm. Um, so the interesting kind of like give and take of this game is that players will be spending uh, money that they've got, uh, their personal supply of cash, to buy cards which come with, and each card comes with a polyomino piece that you're going to slot onto your grid, but then also a special power, like a special kind of boost or benefit. For example, maybe at the end of the round, every restaurant you've got gives you a bit of extra income. Um, however, on your turn, you might not be choose to expand your town because you might instead activate one of the round six events, which will send everybody out around the table for all players to go and eat at everyone's restaurants, mm. which is great if you've got enough restaurants for everybody. If you don't, you're not going to get a lot of money or points. You just get nothing. Yes. Um, there are other interesting events, like a weird audit of how much <laughs> nature you can see in your <laughs> suburb, because everyone's suburb has trees and mountains and water. Which you can just build over. Yes. You can put a big car park on them, but you might want to save them so that when that event triggers, you get some doolars. Yes, but I might look at your board and go, hey, Tom just plowed over that forest. <laughs> I'm now going to activate the nature audit, mm -hmm. and I'm going to get a bunch of dollars from And I'm going to get nature. caught red-handed. Yes, exactly. Logging. Or what you did, you just had a bunch of train stations and then repeatedly activated the event, which enlarges your suburb, mm. which was outrageous. Well, actually, a lot of people did that for me. Oh, they, they? Yeah, oh, yeah. A, a lot of the time it was just like, oh, it's time to expand Tom's suburb well, by like no. four or five times. So because we didn't have many, so the trains, the way train stations work is mm. when the, the the train station event happens, you get an expand, uh, you you bolt on more squares to your map, so you have more space to build on for every train station you've got. 
but you bought all the train stations, which meant yes. that the rest of us didn't have enough space, which meant we kept needing to trigger the event <laughs> that would give us the tiny trickle of additional space from our train stations, mm-hmm. at which point you would get like four additional suburb tiles and, <laughs> and like quadruple the size of and your map. I think I played a fundamentally very different game to what you guys played because I just had so much space that I was just like... Those things that you might have to cover up by placing a little building on top of them. Because you might be like, oh, I want that bonus. I want that extra income from having that tree available so Mm. it'll get audited positively. I never had to cover one of those up because I had so much acreage. Yes. And then I looked at your boards and you were trying to like cram the t- these tiny pieces into the perfect little slot for them every round. In real life, you've you've seen what my fridge looks like, right? In, yeah. in the flat that my wife and I rent, we have a fridge that is about a third of the size of, of, a, st- mm. of a standard fridge. It's petite. Yes, but it means that constantly we are playing a kind of food Tetris of, right. of fitting things in. Yes. That's, that That was the game I was playing in Rebuilding Seattle. <laughs> you just had some kind of walk-in freezer, if right. we're continuing this metaphor. You'd walk in and go, I'll just put this burger here mm-hmm. in my acres of empty space. That's pretty much exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> this game's good. Yeah. I like his, I, It was... Polyominoes are just really good. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think what Rebuilding Seattle is, or will be when you have the opportunity to buy it in 2023, is just a really solid game of balancing economics with putting squares on squares. Yeah. How are you going to fit that T or L-shaped square on your map? You can't. And that's because of decisions you've made in your past. And that's a fun puzzle. Here's my question. Because okay. I like Rebuilding Seattle. I don't necessarily want to play it again. And I, I had a good time with it. But I think I had a good time with it because I just like placing polyominoes down. Yes. I feel like as soon as you put those in a game, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Because it's just going to be pleasing and a little tactile fun puzzle. Mm-hmm. That's great on its own. Mm. Does this game really elevate polyominoes in a way that is like dramatically exciting and worth buying over, say, Baron Park or New York Zoo or Patchwork? I was going to, I thought you were going to say the, the king of polyomino games, which is My City. My City by ah. Ryan Pitya, which I think is is the top of all of those. I think that is actually the top dog, now you mention it. Yeah. It's very good. Mm. And also has the most annoyingly forgettable and generic name in the world. Yeah. And like, it's ungoogleable. If you <laughs> Google My City, I mean, yeah. But do yourself a favor, search for board game My, My City, City, and you'll discover a legacy game that looks awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's so ugly. Um, and plays great. It's real good. That's always introducing new little wrinkles because it understands that polyominoes are just really satisfying. So every like change it makes is about making the polyomino puzzle more interesting. Yeah. To clarify, what Tom's talking about there is that My City is a legacy game. So oh, yes. every game of My City you play is slightly different from the one that came before. Mm-hmm. But they're all really good. They, yeah. Each each installation is great because you're playing a fundamentally really satisfying polyomino game. I don't know how much the sort of economic element that is tacked on. Well, not tacked on, it's core to the design of Rebuilding Seattle. I don't know how much I actually enjoy that puzzle over just, you know, my enjoyment of the game is like 80% polyominoes and 20% making some money to yeah. buy more polyominoes. I can say, you know, people, Patchwork is such a weird, you know, classic board game mm. because it takes polyominoes and then adds an economy onto it, which is weird <laughs> because it's a game about quilting. Right. Um, but that economy side of it is is good. And it's, Riveting. It, yeah, and it causes people to like patchwork. What I will say is if you like the sort of miniature economic element that you see in Uwe Rosenberg games, patchwork and New York Zoo. And yeah. um, no, it's just those two. Yeah. There are more. There are There are more, but... Yeah, people don't um, care about those ones. If you like that economic element, and if you said, "What if it was a bit more like a Eurogame? What if mm. there was a bit more economy?" That is exactly what Rebuilding Seattle is. It's, right. it's sort of like changes the ratio of polyomino to economy 
do you, ever, do, you, do you ever do you ever hear what you're saying on this podcast and think what's my job yeah i know what am I, if, <laughs> i'm literally saying the sentence right now if you want a different ratio of polyomino to economy rebuilding seattle is there for you i feel like that's going to be like increasingly as board games become more and more just like you know mergers of different design ideas yeah. like hey it's a deck builder but with this it's going to be more and more valuable having these sort of incredibly granular descriptions yeah, of what a these game like is. sliders where you, you know You'll have a thing where it's like, well, 100% polyomino. That's, I don't know, New York. Well, not New York Zoo, but. That's 100%. That's just Barron Park, maybe. Barron, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Or just no, Barron Tetris yeah. is 100% polyomino. And then, like, rebuilding Seattle is like 60 40, maybe. 60% economics, economics to. to yeah. Uh, yeah. But then we're going to have a different sliding scale in like a few years. It'll be like deck builder to polyomino. I will just. <laughs> You'll be able to plot games along that I axis. I will end by saying that I really liked the inclusion of dancing in Rebuilding Seattle. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Like, the, the, it's not the first game I've played where you build restaurants. Mm. And like, to clarify, the dancing doesn't, <laughs> there's no actual dancing. It's just you put down a tile, which is ostensibly a dance hall. Yes. But it was just nice to have, to say the word dance hall <laughs> yeah. while playing games. The way that you said it did make it sound like there was a mandatory, like, end of round dancing step. A dance off, yeah. Mm. That's not what happens. But, no. but just having dance halls meant that, you know, like the friend we were playing with was like, oh no, I don't have enough room for people to dance in. <laughs> and that's just an intrinsically cute concept. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm glad we've settled on that one. And the next game we're going to be talking about on this podcast is Fire and Stone Siege of Vienna 1683. Oh. And if that sounds boring, this game actually really impressed us both. We we also had a we had a good time with we this. We did have, we did have a good time. I want to just like I've got one note on my phone. I'm just going to read this out okay. because um this is like if you think this game sounds boring, actually it's really approachable. What the Capstone Iron Rails games are to the 18xx genre, oh Fire and Stone is to historical war games. But if that didn't make any sense to you, that's okay. A guy at the pub just said it looked like Risk and he was basically right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is exactly what happened. Yeah. This is a game by uh, Robert Dulesky. And uh, if you're not if you're not sort of like super up on your history of the Siege of Vienna in 1683, <laughs> um, let me tell you, this was a big siege in history. It mm. was when the Ottoman Empire um, sent 100,000 people um, to conquer. Like people thought maybe the Ottoman Empire will invade Europe. Right. Uh, but then what the Ottoman Empire actually did is, what if we just walked past a bunch of European <laughs> forts and went straight for the capital of Austria? Mm. And if that had, if they'd taken it, that would have like changed European history, right? And they didn't? They didn't. They sent 100,000 people, and you're, you're going to ask person at home, who's that army led by? It was led by Grand Vizier Mirzi Forlu Kara Mustafa Pasha. And of course I knew that already. You, now I now I've told you, like, you yeah, remember. Yeah, you exactly, remember when you hear it. Exactly. Um, as and, soon as you said Mustafa, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. that guy. Uh, and then 100,000 Ottomans took on only 12,000 Habsburgs led by... Feldzugmeister Ernst Rudiger Graf von Starhemberg. Again, Ooh. you'll remember Starhemberg. I do remember Star. I, you know what? I actually do remember Starhemberg from our game because of the final act twist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really good. He was injured. We'll get to that later. I mostly remember your soldiers pooping themselves because dysentery is a huge part that's of this true. game. And that's not even a joke. Yeah. Dysentery played a big part in <laughs> Tom and my game of this. Um, my forces were crippled by dysentery. As I was the Habsburgs, yeah. So you think like, oh, wow, 12,000 people versus 100,000 people. Is this like a, you know, Spartans at Thermopylae kind of situation? No, because <laughs> what it is, is the Habsburgs making the Ottomans walk across an absolute killing field. Yes. Um, and so during the game, basically, you're going to be marching armies across a killing field, trying to take forts mm -hmm. and like painstakingly inch your way closer to getting in the castle at Austria. 
Yes. And, we, and if you do that, the Ottomans win. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you fail, that if you fail, there's a time limit because after a while, the Polish army shows up. And but here's what I found out. Well, before this podcast, I looked at the Wikipedia page for this. There's not one but two pieces of music that were inspired oh, yes. by this siege. So first off, uh, Austrian composer Johann Sebastian Fuchs. Um, wrote this piece of music about the siege, celebrating uh, the victory of the Ottomans in 1683. You're gonna blast it? You wanna give it a listen? Crank it. It's nice, isn't it? Mm, yeah. I don't know why you're showing it to me. Well, it's just, it's just, doesn't it make you feel more in touch with kind of history? Um, The person who wrote this Live there? Live through the... No, but he heard about the siege and was like, right. that's awesome. So, like, if I wrote a sort of banging synthesizer track, then it would be just as connected to the events as this is. Well, no. Like, actually, tell you what. <laughs> well, here's the other piece of music, is that um, there, there's another musician, the Swedish metal band Sabaton, in 2016, also wrote a piece of music about the siege of... Oh. The siege of Vienna. Would you like to hear it? This is the official lyric video you've got up. I do. You can listen to the lyrics now. Let's go. Wings of Sars arrived. Do you remember in our game when the Wings of Sars arrived? They didn't. No, they didn't. Because you won. You got absolutely point. goosed by that point. Yeah, look. Uh, yeah, this one. This one's a banger too. This is <laughs> every single thing that came out of uh, the Siege of Vienna was great. Apparently, there's something that feels kind of racist about. Like these are songs <laughs> that do celebrate, like essentially, the victory of white people over brown people. Right. So I'm not feeling like. Super good about listening to music anymore. Yeah, should we talk fair. about should we talk about the board game? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the board. Game. I just, like, but for real though, like the th- so before we get into the game proper, like the thing about well, as soon as you got this game on the table, I was like, ugh, mm. because a thing that you and I have talked about a lot and maybe mentioned on the podcast before is that when you are new to board games, like yes. I've been writing about board games ten years, you've been doing it for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're new to the world of board games, you look at the world of war games. Yeah. Which are a special genre of which this game we're talking about is one, mm-hmm. um, which are like very different to regular board games because fun isn't always the focus. <laughs> Sometimes it's it's more about like exploring historical events and sort of like, I don't know, playing with how they could have gone differently, like you'd play with sand in a sand. Pit. Yeah, and I and I think one one that's one of the sort of routes that gets people into these kinds of games. And the other route, which is the one that I'm like, Oh, was like, wow, I like board games. Why do I like board games? They got systems. Yeah. Board games have the most systems. <laughs> it's these war games. And then you get really excited about reading a big manual with like a billion different rules for like annexing the Balkans. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, and, and your brain hurts. For example, like people get really excited about games like Root because they're asymmetric. Right. So board gamers like asymmetric systems. They like it when one player has a different sort of game that they're playing than the other player. Yes. War games are like the home of that. So you look at war games and you go, oh, wow, we're all playing slightly different games. That sounds great. No. <laughs> <laughs> like generally speaking war games are like obtuse and difficult and involve way more rule learning than they do fun the ratio is just completely off yes so you put this board game in front of me as like someone who hasn't played as many war games as i have and i said oh no mm. however this game uh fire and stone siege of vienna 1683 comes from capstone games a publisher we are continually impressed by yeah and this is them trying to make war games a bit simpler and a bit more accessible right and they succeed on both fronts, I think. Yes, the rules teach for uh, Fire and Stone is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. And this is the bit that really impressed me. Usually when you buy war games, it's kind of assumed by the grognards who make them that you know about the history you're about to simulate. <laughs> what I really liked about Fire and Stone is it comes with a really nice, well-written manual that's like, right, you have no idea what the Siege of Vienna is. Let mm-hmm. me walk this through. 
let me let me teach you about it. And what I liked is that you refreshed yourself on the rules for this while I read the history booklet. <laughs> and then when we sat down to play, you would teach me the rules and I'd be like, oh, yes, Tom. That's because <laughs> the cannons were mounted on this particular bastion. And also, yeah. you're going to get a lot of dysentery. And, and sure enough. <laughs> sure enough, I did. got so much dysentery. Mm. That's that's good, though. That's a really, like, I didn't think about that as being such a an on-ramp into that, that exciting part of war games. Oh, you want to learn about history? Here you go. Here's the way in. We've got a whole historical booklet. And then you can have one player telling you the history while the other player gets to all the rules. That's sure. nice. I like yeah. that. That's a, that's a cool little touch. Yeah, I think... If you care about history, which... I don't. <laughs> I do like history, and I did genuinely find that I don't know. I enjoyed this game more for having a book that, mm-hmm. that refreshed me on everything. Yeah, right, here's what to watch out for. Uh, okay, right. We've talked about uh, the the band Sabaton and war games <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. Should we talk about the game a little bit? Yeah, let's go for it. Uh, so in this game, you've got a sort of hex based map. Mm-hmm. This big sort of stretch in front of you that represents the fort and your troops invading it. And it's sort of one of the nice touches of this is that. In other games, you might have little cubes that represent your soldiers. You might have little tiny plastic army men. Here, it's assumed that your troops are just kind of everywhere. Yes. They're not represented by pieces on these hexes. They're represented by a deck of cards that represents the the vastness of your forces. And one of us had a much larger deck than the other. (laughs) Um, Yes. uh, uh, The Austrian army is so small. (laughs) And you have so many abilities as the Austrians. It's like, okay, yeah, you're under siege but you can ride out. Mm. You can, you know, send your men into cannon fire and the Ottomans shoot at you with cannons. And I was like, but the benefits for doing this seems great. Uh, and then like halfway through the game, realized that my army was down to quite literally like seven cards. <laughs> like it's just preposterous. And then there's a lovely system where your soldiers also get tired because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can use them for one battle each round. Yes. And then after that, if you start having to reach into your discard and like, lads, lads, you have to you have to go fight another battle. <laughs> they get real unhappy. Mm-hmm. And if your unhappiness, also known as morale, reaches zero, you just lose the game. Yeah, straight away. Everyone just gives up. And the motions of the game are like surprisingly simple. There's like four different actions. And I got really worried because you have this huge player sheet that has all this text on it. But really like both players essentially have access to the same set of actions, with very minor differences. You don't have to teach like in something like, I don't know, a distant plane where you have four different uh, groups that all have entirely different rule sets, entirely different ways of approaching yeah. the game. Here, there are slight changes, but nothing drastic. So what, we can build little barricades. You can build little barricades. You can dig tunnels under the barricades to undermine them. Yep, for a little tunnel digging mini game where you have to flip these little tiles and have a certain strength. And I was a little bit better at digging than you were. Uh, You can fire your cannons wildly, which let me tell you, Austria has a lot of cannons and they're firing them downhill. (laughs) And the Ottomans get absolutely pancakes uh, pretty much on a turn-by-turn basis. We should actually just highlight that rule as being one of my favourite ones in the game, which is that when the uh, Ottomans attack a space, they'll roll what cannons they have in a space, they'll roll to attack the space next to it. I have six cannons in this space, you have five cannons, I roll my six cannons, I do some damage. Every single time the Habsburgs roll for cannon shots, they roll for every single cannon on the board. Yes. Every single time. Which is, like, so it's just... Honestly, that's just a really nice, clean mechanic. The, yeah. it starts, the Ottomans have um, a bigger army mm-hmm. and just a huge deck, which is super intimidating for the Austrians. And then the <laughs> Austrians have 12 cannons. And the game comes with 12 chunky yellow Austrian dice. Yes. And you just shake them in a beat like you're playing Warhammer or something. Shake, shake, shake. And you throw them across the board. And the Ottomans get pancakes. But 
slowly but surely mm -hmm. the Ottomans will take spaces that contain those cannons. So you yes. go from rolling 12 dice to 11 to 10 to 5. <laughs> and then by the end of the game, yeah, I was rolling four dice. Yeah, to try I had and stop more cannons you. than you by the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's this sort of like slow war of attrition. And most of what the game comprises of is doing attack actions, which is sort of the huge amount of time you're going to spend this game is doing the sort of the battles, the mm. sort of core assaults, which is this lovely little mini game where you pick up your whole deck of cards you'll choose a certain number of troops. You'll to choose sort of... a bunch of sad lads to fling into the battle. <laughs> and they might be bad, or mm -hmm. they might be good. Yeah, and then you'll reveal those troops, and then you have a sort of... I'm sort of being deliberately vague, because getting into the weeds here would probably be, you know, not really good for anyone's sanity. <laughs> but you'll have this sort of cannon off, where you then roll dice to sort of push people into the back lines, which oh, yeah. might be good for the player who's attacking, because they can sort of preserve their strong units if they know they're going to get whomped. Right. And the winner will just take, like, the entire space. And so this um, is deliberately kind of weighted towards the Ottomans because I think that the Habsburgs typically don't actually want to control any more territory than they start with. But the Ottomans will slowly just, yeah, like put little, uh, what do you call them? Those things. Oh, pitons. Pitons yeah. into the sort of um, Austrian fortifications. Yeah, you are definitely climbing a, a mountain. Yes. Um, but I guess the, uh, there's no getting around it. Like while this might sound like, oh, like a cool tactical battle, like mm -hmm. a kind of chess sort of situation. No, because um, <laughs> what it uses is the system that's been in vogue in war games for a long time. This is what's called a card-driven war game. So the structure of it is that each side, so the Ottomans and the Austrians, have a deck of cards representing sort of like cool historical events. Mm -hmm. For example, there's a famous event in history where as the Turks were trying to tunnel under the fort's walls, there was... Uh, this is sort of apocryphal, but there was a baker <laughs> who was baking bread in the basement of the castle. Because this siege happened over like, I think, two months. Yeah. Right. Two, so it's, it's not like a battle. It's like two months of just <laughs> slog. This baker heard the like, ting, ting, and the digging of um, the Ottomans getting close. And the uh. baker went, oh, no, it was an Austrian accent. <laughs> I can't. German. No, I liked him. Being, I am this German. Oh no! I liked him being Italian. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> um, uh, so he then ran and let people know that the tunnel was coming and supposedly saved the city. So this right. one baker changes the whole course yeah, of yeah, human yeah. history. Um, that didn't that, really happen though, did it? No, I burned that card to like fire a cannon at you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what happens is each round you draw a random. Each player draws a random hand of these historical events, such as. Lol, the Ottomans have dysentery. Yeah. Uh, actually, there's like loads as of those cards in the deck. Tons of them. Um, or you won the game by playing a card that's like, aha, your leader has been is yes. injured. That was fantastic. On the very last turn, it was like, you played a card that was like, Strabsborg or whatever he was called. Yeah, um, uh, well, we've got it written down here. Stromberg? Starnberg? Starnberg. It was like, Starnberg rides again. And yeah. I was like, no, he doesn't. Starnberg's He's been, been shot. Yeah, so each player has this deck of real events um, or, or sort of like um, myth. Not myth, but like stuff we don't know if it happened or not. Sure. But then on your turn, you can either... So you go back and forth playing these cards in your hand, but you can either play it as like, aha, you know, whatever. Starnberg's have been injured. Mm -hmm. Or... You can burn that card, so it, the text on the card doesn't happen in order to do one of the events we listed before. So build a wall, fire a cannon, uh, attack. Yeah. Which means the game is kind of, it's, it's a very, it's, I've always thought it's such a surreal system because you're kind of you're deciding which historical events happen versus being like, this historical event is irrelevant for me, so I'm going to bid it. <laughs> um, but in play, honestly, if I'm being totally honest, I've been making fun of this system for a long time. I've never really loved it. Right. Um, Fire and Stone, credit to Capstone, is the first war game I've played that makes me realize why people like this mm -hmm. system. Because if you, it's, it's abstract, it's weird, it doesn't make a ton of sense from a historical simulation perspective. But in terms of what it felt like to play, once I got into grips with the rules of Fire and Stone, 
I felt like I was just kind of living through history. A mix yeah. of making tactical decisions and then just historic stuff happening where I go, <laughs> oh no, history is happening to me. Yeah, for how, sure. How did you feel about it? Yeah, I think that there's enough. You've got this hand of these strategy cards, right? Which are more like tactics cards, to be honest, because they are your sort of turn by turn. How am I going to sort of get this to work for me this exact round? You can reserve one card between rounds. Yeah. So you have this sort of layer of like quite tactical, immediate, how do I make the most of the opportunities presented in front of me? I, I'm looking at this purely from just like a systems point of view. Because yeah. again, what is history? I don't care. It's <laughs> old. Sure. Um, so you have this hand of cards that you're making these little tactical decisions about. But then you also do have a sort of long-term strategic thing because you have a bunch of other cards. You have five cards that are sort oh, of... Oh, tactics cards. Tactics yeah. cards. They're sort of <laughs> the wrong way around. Maybe they... Mate, hold on. Maybe they are actually described the no, other no, way around. No, no. I'm getting them wrong. No, you're right. Because tactics cards are stuff you use in battles. Yeah. But then you have these cards that you can then play that are sort of... You know these are going to be the tent poles of your strategy for the whole game. These big, powerful cards you have in your hand from turn one. Mm -hmm. So you know that you're going to have these sort of, you're building towards these opportunities where you can say, oh, I want to use this card to do this big sort of offensive on this space. Oh, I want to use this card in case, you know, that offensive goes south. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's lots of really, the card play is really quite nifty. I really enjoyed it. And the fact that you only ever see each card once, you'll see that card, you will either play it for its event or you'll play it for its, uh, you know, take an action. It goes into the bin. You never see it again. And like each card is like a little bit unique, I think. Yeah. Also the game, I mean, there's so much to like about it. Like the, the game itself you're playing is good. The asymmetry is good. Mm -hmm. You know, like we, I, I would have happily like swapped and tried, because I, I think it would have felt weirdly different to play as the Ottomans. Oh, yes. We also learned a lot in that first game, you know, specifically to do with how small the Austrian <laughs> army is. Yeah, you were just spaffing away those troops from the I was one. like, siege? Sure. I'm just going to go and take the fight to the Ottomans. And it made my morale really good yeah. until we realized there were three of us left. Yes. Uh, okay, but here's the thing. Like, you don't care about history. No. But there was so much text on those cards. So much of this game was rules that simulate specific history and you reading cards that simulate historical events. You just didn't, you didn't care? I guess I cared about it in a narrative, in an immediate narrative sense. In the sense that it's like, you read that tiny bit of flavor text on the bottom of the card and I don't go, oh, that's cool because that happened in the old times. I'm like, oh, that's happening now at this table. There's a baker and he's scared. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but ultimately, I guess, the thing I'd point out and the, 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 the fundamental contradiction of these games to me um, is what happened in the last turn of our game. Oh, yeah. Because, like, you know, we were supposed stressing over strategy and tactics mm -hmm. and what the right decisions are. But because it because of this card-driven system, which it has in place to simulate history, the way our game ended was I looked at the board and according to all the rules you had taught me and we had been playing with for the last two hours, yeah. there was no way you could get into the fort. Right. And then you basically played a card that was, I can get into the <laughs> fort, actually. It was like, you know, your leader's been injured. It's like, okay. And I couldn't have predicted that was going to happen. Mm, no, that's right? true. And because of the random setup of the game, I did not know you even had that card. It was like a 50-50, even if I played the game before. Yes. Which means also, not only was our first game kind of like, well, I lost and it wasn't my fault, but if we were to play that game again, I have to play with the weird idea that my leader might randomly be injured at some point because I know that can happen in this particular war game. Yes, yes. It's, it's so funny to me that this is a genre that's like, we're going to engage in a really tight, difficult tactical contest. Also, cards are just going to be adding bullshit into the game. I don't actually know if the people who really like these games are actually approaching them as a really tight tactical puzzle. I think they are approaching them as fundamentally well, both, things. right? Yeah, but I think it, it's more towards the story, the narrative, the thing sort of like the, the random stuff that's going to happen that's going to sort of disrupt the flow of the game. I don't think they are as much concerned with like, I want this to be a perfect, pure competition. 
as we might be if we're playing, I don't know, like Tash Kalar or something. I right? wonder what it says that you don't care about history and you like this, and I do <laughs> care about history and I don't really love this. I well, think no, it, we both. I I think we, we both, both enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, we were. I mean, this is the theme of the podcast: both games that we really enjoyed but don't ever want to play again. I yeah, I wouldn't hate playing it again if we were in a pub and there was nothing else there. <laughs> Which sounds like dark, but you know, we had a good time. Yeah, we had a really good time. And we were I, playing it in a pub. It got incredibly dark, and we were both having to squint because as the sun went down, we could barely see the game. <laughs> but like, there was never like, should we stop? It's like, no, we're gonna. We're, yeah, we're, we're in. We're in the. We're in the teeth of this this fight now. Yeah, I, I think, and I think that. My desire to not play it again is because I almost feel like it has this sort of packaged experience that we had, which is that you said something about you read something from the designer saying that like they wanted to make sure that the game feels like, like a siege, like a siege, which is like basically incredibly tense for both sides. Yeah, nail biting, grueling, yeah. and like constantly sort of like yeah, like, like you're and you're sustaining these losses. Kind of both sides feel like they're losing at all times. Yeah, that design impulse is is throughout this game like a stick of rock yeah and it's fantastic but it's like once i've experienced that i don't necessarily want to dip back in again you know we always use that term and i don't think we've ever explained what, what it a is stick of rock is yeah so just it's like so rocks are like these things that they come from the ground no don't, and don't like, confuse our americans okay. even more sorry americans. too mean do they have rock over there they don't have sticks of rock just is a sand thing. oh right so a stick of rock is a piece of pulled candy which basically is designed in such a, and they do have similar things in seaside towns in america but yeah, if, if presumably. You, if you cut it in half, it means the word will still be printed yes. in the candy. Yeah. So, like, if you imagine a piece of candy, like we live in Brighton, this is so boring. But you know what? You know what? No, it's it's in a public service. It's important. I, okay. If we ever say "stick of rock" ever again in a podcast, we can say, "Just listen to episode one nine nine point seven five or shut up and sit down." Podcast. Oh, God. Can you put some British music under this? Actually? Yeah. Okay. Like sure. The national anthem. Yeah. Yeah. So, where we live in Brighton, there's candy that might say like Brighton or like your favourite football club. Manchester United or whatever. Brighton. You So you buy a piece of rock that'll say Brighton, but if you cut it in half, it'll still say the word Brighton and, in it. And to clarify, the rock is not rock. It's not a sweet. rock. It's a sweet. It's sweet. It's sweet. It's hard candy. One big sweet. Yes. Tube sweet. Yeah. With, and it will say Brighton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was me doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you still don't understand, which you probably don't, Google image search. <laughs> yeah. British rock candy. British rock candy. So when we say says the word running through it like a stick of rock yeah it's like if you imagine this is fire and stone CGV imagine the word grueling with the word like you could cut this game with a knife in any way and the word grueling would still be there <laughs> yeah. that's but what it's we good, mean it's good grueling yeah yeah but, so here's the question <laughs> neither of us are going to buy this game or necessarily put it in our collection if Capstone Games was to release the next game in this like baby's first war game series yeah about, I don't know, some other battle that you and I have quite literally never heard of. <laughs> um, would you Would you buy it? Would you play it? Well, you wouldn't buy it. I wouldn't buy it. But would you play it? Yeah. <laughs> it's such a crap conclusion. <laughs> I've just realised that now we've finished recording the podcast, we have to go and play another game of um, Undaunted Stalingrad. Yeah. I'd talk about another gruelling experience. Who's going to win this time? What do you, oh, don't tell the people at home that you won our first I game. I won our first game. Although I did sustain heavy losses. You, you two, only two people got shot. It was miserable. I fired my machine gun at you so much <laughs> and only two Russians fell over. Yeah. And they are, they are, they're thoroughly dead. Yeah. Well, and then they got replaced with a man with a shovel. That is the most bleak. We should tease that. Yeah, the fact that you um, 
when you get people shot, they're replaced with reserves that don't have the same ability. You've yes. got a rifleman mm-hmm. who can only shoot people in the same square he's in. Yeah. And then the art asset is him holding a shovel <laughs> and no gun. So we've you already have one less gun than you do soldiers as we yes. go into game two. Game two of like a 15 potential. Oh no, actually you have two campaign. less guns because you also now have a scout that also can't attack and yeah. just has some binoculars. He can't attack at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's great. He so can just look. Basically, this will be a process of me slowly prying guns out of the hands of your soldiers. <laughs> uh, what, a, what a game. I'm at, yeah. Okay, I've taught myself round. I was nervous about going into game two. Now I'm just excited. Oh dear. Okay, thank you very much for listening to the Shut Up and down podcast everybody we'll be back next week with more (laughs) it doesn't stop